Greetings and welcome to the Random History Podcast. Today I will be discussing the Magna Carta. I have realized that there's actually several historical documents that people don't really mention yet are quite influential and quite significant in the laws today and in this modern society. So I'm going to be talking about those starting with the Magna Carta. Those who do not know what the Magna Carta is, the Magna Carta was a royal charter of rights agreed to by King John, King John of England. And on June 15th, 1215, sorry, that was ended up being drafted to make peace between the king and a rebel faction composed of various barons that ended up setting up various key rights. I'm going to kind of give some background first so you can kind of understand the factors and stuff behind this. So at the, kind of very, like, soon before the time the Magna Carta was signed, England was ruled by King John, and he was the third of the Ainsvin kings, and this was a royal house of French origin that would rule England in the 12th century and the early 13th century. So in, during this period, or at least during this time, England as a kingdom would have a very robust administrative system. They would be very well ruled. However, under the Ainsvin monarchs, the government system in of itself was definitely like, there wasn't very like a clear system. It was very like ill-defined and both John and his predecessors ruled under a principle known as vis es voluntas, a.k.a. a force and will, and that they would basically make executive or even sometimes like very arbitrary decisions, and they would justify them on the concept that as the king, they are above the law. So basically, there wasn't like a really like clear set of rules, and oftentimes the kings would justify their actions as, I am above the law, nothing can control me. And the reason that this is such a controversial thing is that People at the time often believed that monarchs should rule in a way that keeps in track with both the laws of the nation and the customs. But in this case, the John and the rest and many of the other Angevine monarchs would not rule in this way. They had rules in ways where they would ignore the law and they would feel that they did not have to listen to it. So there was a lot of unpopularity. And the reason that this also was so successful to them is that because they had no model for what they should do if a king refuses to follow the law. So they had no way of enforcing this upon the king. And it's neat to know that John had actually suffered a major loss in 1204 when he lost most of his family's ancestral lands in France to King Philip II. And he would struggle to regain them for several, for many years. And in order to fund wars, because as we all know, from history, wars are very expensive. He ended up raising taxes on the barons to get money to fight a war. However, this war would be a very expensive failure. And then later, after his, after his allies would be defeated at the Battle of Bouvines, he had to sue for peace, which required him to pay a large amount of comp compensation. And by this point, he was already personally unpopular to many of the barons because most of them would own money to the crown, and there was actually very little trust between the two sides. And sadly enough, actually, no, not sadly, but interestingly, if he had won this, it is very likely that this triumph would have strengthened his position and, and actually possibly prevented the conflict. Because of both of, like, people would respect him more, and he would not have had to pay so much expensive compensation. And then, but, of course, he did not win, as you already know. And then, actually, only a few months after he returned from northern France, he learned that rebel barons in both the northern and eastern portions of England were organizing resistance to his rule. And, and the rebels would actually take an oath in which they would stand fast for the liberty of the church and the realm, and they would actually end up demanding that the king would confirm something known as the Charter of Liberties, which had previously been declared by King Henry I. 
and the Barons actually had, kind of had this perception that this Charter of Liberties would protect their rights and kind of put limits on the king so that the kings would no longer be able to justify every action by saying that there's the king. It would basically put limits on what a king could do. Interesting enough, interestingly enough is that the Barons were not exactly like master technicians and like they were not exactly very respected people. And they were often sometimes like disrespected and sometimes even like disliked because of their actions. However, they were united just by their alone by their hatred of John. And that actually their the later elected leader of them, known as Robert Fitzwalter, would actually claim make several claims about John and would was even implicated in a, a plot to assassinate him. So as you can tell, these guys did not like John. This wasn't like a we like you but we need to do this type deal. It was more of a we don't like you. So, basically, this is even worse for John just because if they had liked them somewhat, he probably would have been able to negotiate them with easier. But if they already hate them and they're mad at him, it's not going to be very easy for him to negotiate. And he would actually end up holding a council in January 1214 to kind of discuss potential reforms. And he would actually kind of sponsor discussions in Oxford between both his side and the rebels during the spring. And interestingly enough is that both of them would end up appealing to Pope Innocent III. And the thing to note is that oftentimes in medieval Europe, the Pope would be called upon to help resolve disputes just because of, like, he's the Pope. And because at this period it was pre-Reformation, the Pope was still, like, the figure, the leading figure of pretty much all Christianity at this point, or at least all Europe, most of European Christianity. And as a result of this, he was respected by pretty much everyone. This isn't post-Reformation, so England was still Catholic at this point. So the Pope had much a lot of sway in politics and various issues. And during the negotiations, the rebellious barons would actually end up producing a like kind of rudimentary, kind of like a beginning document known as the, in which is kind of widely called the Unknown Charters of Liberty, and was basically like very inspired and based on Henry the First Charter of Liberties, and actually several artif articles from this doc from that document would later appear in the so-called Articles of Barons and kind of subsequent charter. So interesting to know that the previous Charter of Liberties definitely had a major effect on the Magna Carta. It's kind of cool to always note about how over time, historical documents will always influence each other and they, most documents are influenced by past documents with the exception of some of the earlier documents. And King John actually hoped that the Pope would be able to give them both legal and moral support and, like, and moral support that would be especially useful for him and just because of how important the Pope was. And as a result of this, he actually ended up kind of like trying to stall and play for time until the Pope could like get ready to help him. So basically, he was kind of waiting for an ally to show up. And I mean, he probably should have, he, sh he was definitely able to like depend on this. And he was actually declared to be a papal vessel, which basically means like, I am beholden to the Pope type deal. Kind of like, basically make yourself like a like a, um, kind of like a lord of a pope, basically, like, except it's like the king or like the underling of a pope. And he kind of basically, and then at the same time, he would recruit mercenary forces from France, but he ended up deploying some of them back just to kind of avoid the impression that, oh, he's building up an army type deal. Because if you're building up an army, he's, that could be definitely viewed as escalation. And interesting enough is that he would even take an oath to become a crusader, which would give him additional pot political protection under the law of the church. Take to note, the church has some interesting, like, rules at this time and a lot of interesting laws. But certain actions, for example, pledging to be crusader would give you additional protection. However, a lot of people 
pretty much rightly assumed that this was insincere and more just for polit- petty political reasons than to actually become a crusader. Then later on, the Pope would actually send various letters backing John in April. However, by this time, the rebels had actually organized into their own military faction, and they would both renounce their feudal ties while also marching on various locations. So, like, his, his, like, so John actually during this time had been appealing to both moderate, he, like, not necessarily appealing to, sorry, I don't meant appealing, I meant he tried to appeal to be, like, the moderate, kind of the guy who wants to, like, unite people, but the moment that the rebels ended up holding, holding London, a giant wave of Loyalists would kind of, or royal, not loyalist, royalists, sorry, very similar wards, would kind of flock to them because, like, these guys are probably going to win, and they didn't want to be on the losing side. And the king actually ended up trying to, like, submit this this to the, a kind of a committee of arbitration with the Pope as the supreme arbiter, but the rebels did not like this because, like, the Pope already stands with this guy, we're going to lose again. And actually, at this time, Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is a very, basically the principal leader of the Church of England, and a very, like, important leader in just the English Church at the period, was working with the rebel barons, and that after the, like, the, the suggestion of using the Pope failed, John actually got Langdon, Langton, sorry, to organize the talks, which is definitely great for the rebels, not so great for John. They end up meeting at Runnymede, which is this water metal. Water meadow on the south bank of the River Thames. This was kind of a traditional place for assemblies, and it was on neutral ground between both the Rebel Base and Windsor Castle. And the reason that this was so successful also is because it gave both sides a location where they were unlikely to have a disadvantage, so they weren't worried about, like, oh, we're going to get ambushed and we're going to lose because we're in a bad spot, so they didn't have to worry about that. And this is actually where the Rebels would promote their... Their planned, their, no, their demands for reform, aka the so-called Articles of Baron. And then the next ten days is that Stephen Langdon, he's like kind of, he was a very pragmatic man, and his efforts at mediation went up turning these kind of incomplete and not completely done demands into the charter that would kind of basically capture the so-called uh, kind of the great. And that's this so-called, but kind of like a proposed peace agreement. And then a few days later, this would actually later be named the Magna Carta, which actually means Great Charter, so cool to learn. And then by the 15th of June, a general agreement would have been made. And then on the 19th, they would actually end up renewing the Oath of Lordy, and the cop- and various copies of the Charter would formally be issued. And an interesting note to think- and thing to note is that the Charter did not really talk about political theory. It wasn't things like Machiavelli's The Prince in the State, anything like that. It was more about, it, but despite not really focusing on political theory, it went far beyond kind of like into, into like addressing or like dealing with their individual complaints or issues, but it would actually form a wider proposal for political reform. It would protect church rights. It would protect them from illegal imprisonment, access to switch adjustments, and limitations on taxation and other feudal p- payments. It would also focus on the rights of free man, but it's also somewhat of the rights of serfs. So as you can probably tell, some of those things are very common today. The ideas of no illegal imprisonment, certain protection of certain rights, limits on certain things, and ideas like swift trials and certain types of things. Those are concepts which today are very common, but these are some of the first times that these would be seen. So this is kind of seen as a, not necessarily a foundational document as 
the previous charter proposed by Henry had already kind of done this, but it's kind of the first, like, codified version, which is very important for them. Later on, they also even they also even created something known as the Security Clause, which is basically a group of barons who would modify, modify him. Not modify, monitor, sorry about that. And various other things. However, neither of them really tried to implement this. So there would later be a war, but at first this was somewhat successful, and it would kind of stay around and be very important throughout the war. And just throughout British history and after the war. So as I mentioned right there, a war, this is actually kind of one of the, the, the issues around this, and like its acceptance and implementation would be one of the main causes or a very important cause in the so-called First Barons War. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll be back in a minute with another podcast on the Justinian, on, I believe, Justinian's Lockout.